Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On January 17th, 10 storytellers shared their stories with our audience at Holy Hound Tap Room in downtown York. Our theme for the evening was Blank Canvas. We heard stories about starting over, art exhibits, and literal blank canvases turned into works of art. Guests got to attend this event for free. The Cultural Alliance of York County picked up the tab on the tickets and included our event in their Celebrate Arts Week. Matt McDonnell won with his story about switching high schools his senior year. Here's Matt. Many people don't know this about me. I once had the opportunity, I was an undercover narcotics agent in a high school. I was so deep undercover, I didn't know that I was a narcotics agent. (laughs) I had the opportunity, which I didn't see as an opportunity at the time, to change high schools for my senior year. That was rough. It was something that my father agonized over. He did not want to change jobs, but he was given the choice of taking a promotion and moving to Annapolis where the company headquarters was. I'd grown up in Illinois or being unemployed. And he was too close to retirement to be out looking for another job. He agonized over and he took the job and we had to move. So I was moving to a whole new school for my senior year and I saw this as a horrible, sad, rough thing and I cried a lot. But it wasn't, I, I saw the silver lining. I saw the opportunity, the blank canvas, to re, I, reskin myself, to decide who I wanted to be because I was going into this new place where nobody knew me. So I moved to Annapolis during the summer, which was so much cooler than the town that I came from. They had a Tower Records and I dev- found all of these new musical artists, Tori Amos, and I discovered, um, Leonard Cohen for the first time, that was so cool. And downtown there was this cool coffee shop that had poetry readings, and I got into that. And there was a shop called The Big Iguana. So I started buying all these clothes from Guatemala. (laughs) I felt like an artist. I was already into theater, but I suddenly felt like an artist. So I had this thin veneer of a different person that I was wearing on my first day of school. And people would see the way I was dressed, and they'd come up and be like, dude, you like the Grateful Dead? Yeah. What's your favorite song? Uh, (laughs) Like, I've heard their music before. So I was in the theater apartment. I'm hanging out with these people who do go to Grateful Dead concerts. And I was kind of with this crowd that I knew smoked pot. I knew that they were drinking alcohol, but for some reason they never invited me to their parties. And after I'd been there for about two months, I found out that there was a rumor going around the school that I was a narcotics agent. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense. This guy transfers into the school. He's six foot two, has a full beard, doesn't look 17 to me. We're asking him questions about this stuff and he can't really answer them. They were like grilling me at lunch. So I went through my entire senior year with a shadow of suspicion upon me, but eventually graduated and I went on to community college. So it's a year and a half after I graduate from college, 
I'm backstage, it's opening night of the play Hello Dolly, which I was cast in. And I'm talking with this other guy, I, I was playing Ambrose Kemper, and this other guy's playing like a waiter, he's got a small parts. And one of the neat things about that community college was anybody could be in the plays. You didn't have to be a student there. You could just pay a small fee, uh, activity fee, come in and audition. So I was talking to this guy who I thought was just another student. He looked kind of young, and I found out he was significantly older than he looked. And then I found out he was a police officer. And then I found out he had been a narcotics officer. So I told him my story. And this is opening night of the play. We're back like whispering, back behind the curtains, waiting for our cues. And his face turns white. And then there's a little bit of green kind of sneaks into his face, which if you're colorblind might have looked pink. <laughs> and then his face just turns bright red and he literally falls to the floor and I was afraid he was having a seizure, but then I realized that he's laughing and trying so hard to hold it in because he can't laugh out loud because there's a play going on right there. He eventually pulls himself together, stands up and he looks at me and he says, you didn't have a, your hair wasn't that long in high school. No, he said, you went to Annapolis High School. I said, yeah. I was the narcotics officer at your school that year. <laughs> and I'm the one who started the rumors about you. <laughs> and I'm really sorry, man. <laughs> Matt earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up is Debbie Gable. Debbie, a regular at York Story Slam, told us about learning how to best interact with her two sons, who had very different personalities and needs. Before I had children, I think, like many other people, I thought that babies came into the world like a blank canvas. Um, and when I had my first son, might have reinforced that thought a little bit. So I had this baby, and to be honest, he was a lot like me. He was personable, he liked a lot of interaction with people. Um, he was probably only like four or five months old when he found out that if he went like this, it would make everybody laugh, and so he really loved that, and he would do it all the time. Um, and so I really knew how to interact with him. Um, he was very sensitive and very affectionate, and it made a lot of sense to me. And so two years later, I had his brother, and then that was the big news, that actually what I've come to believe is that babies come into the world with their personalities already kind of formed, um, and you just need to watch them unfold. And so my second son was very self-sufficient, had very little need for me, really. Um, I pretty much took care of his basic needs, but otherwise he just really wasn't interested, didn't need a lot of interaction, didn't need to be held, um, didn't cry to get anything that he needed, he was just kind of doing his own thing. Um, and I found that a little disconcerting, I didn't quite know how to care for him, I often felt like I wasn't doing enough, um, but like I said, he kind of just went his own way. So at some point, I realized when he was a toddler that as time went by, and I wasn't really interacting with him a lot because he didn't seem to need or want that, um, I would realize he would start to get really grouchy, you know, and just really kind of 
just not really very friendly. And speaking of not friendly, he hated when people would come up and say, oh, he's so cute. Oh, my gosh, he's so cute. He would growl at people, literally. <laughs> and so as a mother, I was very protective of that. If he wants to growl at people, it's okay with me. I would just tell him just back off, you know. And when he got a little older and he wouldn't, like, feed into them, but he would be quiet, I'd say we've made a lot of progress. <laughs> at least he didn't growl at you now. So... As he got older, and uh, he was uh, when he grew up, and we would talk about just about his personality and kind of what it took for me to learn how to interact with him, and we would laugh about it. And I talked about a lot of things that were very difficult for him. There were a lot of teachers that really didn't like him because he didn't need them either. He was never really disrespectful, but he never feeds into grown-ups. It was just sort of like, I'm not sure what I need you for. I'll be right over here doing my own thing. Um, so that was very frustrating to teachers that were really, you know, really kind of needy. Um, so when he was little, and I realized he would get kind of fussy, I started to do something. One time I just kind of grabbed him, and I said, you just need some loving, and I just squeezed him. And I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do. I certainly respected his need to be in his own space. But I realized that he liked it. And so I thought, okay, now I just have to figure out like, how to do this because he doesn't know how to ask for it, but not do it too much. And so I started a tradition. I said, we're just going to have a loving night, one night a week. I'm going to lay in bed with you at bedtime and just be with you. Just be close with you. I'm not going to ask you any questions. I'm not going to talk at you. I'm just going to be with you. And I have to tell you, it was magical. He would start to talk to me, had the most interesting and creative and funny ideas and thoughts that I've really ever been exposed to. And it was just a delight. And you can imagine, of course, I had to do that with his older brother, who's a social monster. So, of course, we had to have love at night, too. So, um, so we did that for years. And then eventually, when I divorced their father, we really lost track of it with the chaos of kind of going back and forth to different homes, and they were growing up. And so we just kind of lost track of love at night. And years later, when we were talking about this, my younger son told me that he didn't remember. And you can imagine, it was like a knife through my heart. He didn't remember loving nights. And so I had to figure out what to do with those emotions because I didn't want to hold them against him. He only remembers what he remembers, right? And so I thought about myself, and I thought, I actually don't remember a lot of the things I did with my mother who was a stay-at-home mom, who everything she did was about taking care of us and providing a safe and nurturing environment. I have more clear memories of my father, who's a very extreme person. So I have memories of him hurting my feelings and scaring me, as well as showing me great adventures and pushing me to be braver than I thought I could be. I don't really remember that much about my mother and the time that we spent together. So it made me think, when I am kind and good and I remember not to put myself first, it's really a reflection of the time that I spent with my mother. And so I allow myself to believe that that time that I spent with my sons, although they don't remember it, it put an imprint on their soul. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Rita Whitney who shared a story about the art installation she created to simulate her experience with a VNS device to prevent epileptic seizures. Hi. <laughs> so once upon a time, I had this crazy diagnosis of epilepsy. And as part of that, uh, I had surgery one time, and I had this little box put in my chest. And it operated kind of like a pacemaker, but instead of for my heart, it worked for my brain. And there was a little wire, and it went from the box of my chest up my neck, and it connected to a nerve. And every 0.8 seconds by the end of it, 
it would send a little electric shock into my brain. And because of the nerve that it was connected to, it would change my voice. Uh, so all of a sudden I would be talking like this, and then all of a sudden my voice would sound like this, and then it would just go back to normal. So it would go off every 0.8 seconds for about eight seconds. And so you can imagine how that might affect your life, right? Um, it kind of felt like somebody was like squeezing me in the throat a little bit along with the voice change. And while I was kind of dealing with this emotionally, trying to figure out my new life as a robot, essentially, um, I got this awesome opportunity to do an art show at the parliament. Uh, way back when, this is years ago, um, and one of the pieces of the show, in addition to some paintings that I was doing uh, that were trying to represent what was going on, images of the device and all of these other things, um, one of the components of the show was a sound piece, which is something that I had never done before. Um, but it was such an intense part of my life that I felt this need to share it with everyone, to kind of make you understand what was going on. And so what I did was I set up a, uh, like a, I don't remember, a radio or something, and it would loop a noise that sounded like this. <laughs> for 0.8 seconds, or for 8.8 seconds, every eight minutes, or whatever it was. It shifted over time. It started at 30 seconds, going off for 30 seconds every five minutes, and then it went down from there. Um, so the people in the room that were physically in the presence would be disrupted in their lives as much as I was disrupted in my life every time that my implant went off to stop my seizures. And so as an artist, I would argue that the canvas is the surface upon which the art resides. And that's not always visual. It's not always a physical, tangible thing. In this situation, you are the canvas. You're coming in blank, empty, no idea of what this situation is like for me and how it might impact my day-to-day, -day, my job. I was working at Starbucks at the time, talking to people all day, getting questions all day. And so the sound became the art that lasted on you over time as you left. Thank you. All the winners from this year's open mic storytelling events will return to compete for the title of best storyteller in York. Tickets for our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at York Story Slam, as well as on Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. Our podcast is produced with support from The Beer Ace. Find them at thebeerace.com. This episode comes to you with support from this month's featured brewery partner, Roy Pitts Brewing Company. We hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Carla Wilson of Wilson Media Services. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson. You can learn more at wilsonmediaservices.com.